The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. And good evening. Uh, tonight is the uh, fourth of the and last of a series we've been doing on the Eightfold Path. And um, uh, the Eightfold Path is really the uh, the noble, four noble truths of the Eightfold Path are really the heart of Buddhist practice. And it's uh, just to very briefly summarize, it's divided into three sections. Uh, the first section is wisdom, or panya is the Pali. And um, wisdom is our understanding of life and, um, and our attitude. The second part of the path sila or virtue and that's how we live our lives and and basically we live our lives based on our, on our understanding and the third part of the path which is what we're going to uh, focus on tonight is concentration which is uh, or samadhi is the word we're using and uh, that's the training the formal training of the mind in meditation and um, the mind needs to be trained to be able to have wisdom, to be able to see clearly. And, uh, and the whole, uh, all the, these qualities of the Eightfold Path all support each other. Um, the right attitude kind of gets you in the right direction and the right understanding of how to practice the rest of the path. But you need all the different qualities of the path to support each other. Um, the purpose of meditation is threefold. It's to know the mind. It's to train the mind. And it's to free the mind. Formal meditation where we actually just sit and quiet down and pay attention to what's there, that's the time we're spending to know the mind. We can't free a mind unless we know what's there. Mindfulness is the quality that notices what's there. What's the mind like? As we keep bringing our attention back to the breath over and over and over again, that's the training of the mind in concentration. And once the mind is calm and steady, we can see much more clearly what's really going on. When we first sit down and we have all these thoughts kind of shooting across our head, you know, running around there, chasing each other, there isn't much we can, you know, we just kind of notice a big mess in there, right? But once the mind settles, then we can really see the areas in our, the, in our life that are causing us suffering, the areas in our life where we're uh, contracting, uh, closing our hearts, and we can see the areas in our life where we are opening and where we're loving and where we're joyful and we're peaceful. So, but it's only at that level of seeing, once the mind quiets down, that we can actually begin to free the mind. We can't free the mind when we don't know it's caught. So the, that which brings me to the sixth step of the um, Eightfold Path, uh, right effort, or samabhayama. And um, in Buddhism, you've probably, many of you have probably heard the word effort many times. And there's a co- two words that are very common, but they have a little bit of different meaning. And uh, one of the words is called virya, or virya. 
And that word is uh, the energy or effort uh, that we can use in anything. It, it actually comes from the Sanskrit that means courageous heart. It's the, the energy with which we do things wholeheartedly. And we can, virya in itself is an energy, but it's not necessarily a wholesome energy. It's, it's neither. For instance, um, you could have a lot of heart, uh, you know, to a lot of energy and really be very dedicated to breaking into the bank, you know, and robbing it. You know, you could, you know, you could have a lot of energy there and have a lot of courage in some ways, too, in doing it. Um, but well, but uh, the energy itself, or you can use that energy, uh, you know, to help people to um, or to train the mind. So the energy itself is just an energy. But when we talk about right effort, right effort is the energy that's used in the service of freeing the mind, in the service of freedom. And that word we use is, is vayama. It, you know, it's not so important that that you know that, but but that's how we approach right effort in the eightfold path. And there are, um, there are four areas in which we can apply right effort. And uh, the first is is we call guarding, and that's the effort we use when we're meditating, when we guard the mind from unskillful mental states and from unskillful thoughts. And um, we can do that in formal meditation or in our daily life. For instance, um, if you're, you know, sitting quietly, the mind's calmed down a little bit, and, uh, you know, you get, uh, you hear a noise. And um, what was it we heard before? Motorcycle, probably. You know, kind of an unpleasant, loud noise comes in. Um, if you're guarding the senses, what that means is you're really paying close attention. Ah, there's a sound. The sound came in. It's noisy, and it's not. It's unpleasant. At that point, you have a choice. You can have the choice of, of just letting that sound go. It's unpleasant. Yep. Okay. That's. Oh, noise again. Unpleasant. Yep. And and just kind of let it go. Let it go. It doesn't disturb your happiness. But if you don't notice it. Uh, if you don't guard the sense doors, you don't, the, uh, the sound comes in and you just start getting uptight. God, it's noisy in here. And suddenly, you know, your mind just starts spinning, you know. Uh, maybe it's saying, you know, they shouldn't have built the meditation center right on the corner, you know, on the street. You know, it should be quiet. They should use double pane windows, you know. And, uh, and the mind can just keep spinning, you know, in a lot. It could go anywhere, you know. It could go, all of a sudden you might be building the ideal meditation hall in your mind. And, and um, you know, it's amazing how far the mind could travel from that point. And strictly just from uh, not guarding the sense doors. Um, you know, in daily life, for instance, um, you know, I've, um, I don't like the smell of cigarette smoke generally. And I've noticed myself, you know, I'll be walking in front of, uh, you know, some store and somebody's like standing out there smoking a cigarette. And, you know, if I'm aware of it, I'll walk by and I'll go, oh, I'm pleasant. You know, I don't like that smell. And I'll keep going. If I don't notice that, the unpleasant smell goes in, my mind reacts, and it goes, God, that person, what a jerk, is standing there. You know, and so the mind, you know, I can absolutely dislike a person I never met just because I didn't notice that 
oh, that's just an unpleasant smell that happened. So the guarding of the, of the sense doors is a very powerful first effort. Now, what's um, the most powerful tool for us when we're in sitting meditation is being alert to the five hindrances. I know some of you have, have had teachings on the five hindrances and some of you haven't, but um, I'm not going to go into it, but just to name them. The five hindrances are the obstacles in meditation that keep your mind from seeing clearly. And they're wanting, desire. Uh, so you're sitting there meditating and, you know, it's, um, you know, you're hungry. You know, and so the mind just starts wanting, wanting. You know, I want the sitting to be over so I can get dinner. Or, um, or let's say you start itching. And it's unpleasant, and, and your mind goes into version. Oh, I wish it would stop itching. It's so uncomfortable. And the mind contracts away. Or you can get sleepy, or you can get restless, or you can just doubt yourself. So those are like the basic areas that, the, um, you know, that if you really are alert to those things, uh, you can keep the mind much more clear and uh, settled. So, the, so that was the, the first right effort. The second right effort is abandoning uh, the unskillful mental state once it's arisen. Now, I think most people, that's what they have the most experience with. Um, you know, they notice it after they get caught. At least that's my experience. If I pay attention to my mind, you know, most of my life, you know, I notice it after I've gotten angry, after I've gotten irritated. Um, so abandoning, abandoning it. Um, and what's really interesting about abandoning um, something that's happened, you know, one of the examples I sometimes use, uh, you know, one of my favorite annoyances is tech support, you know, for, for the computer. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was kind of a guaranteed area to really bring out my irritation, especially when the person at the other end um, uh, knew less than I did, you know. And... Um, so, so what would happen would be, um, you know, I'd get caught. And I'd notice. I'd go, oh, wow, I've just started my tone of voice. I'm being irritable. Uh, I'm, you know, just not being kind of condescending to this person. So I'd notice it. And then I'd notice that I really didn't want to let go of that feeling. I really, you know, there's something about being righteous that feels good. And, you know, and then I had to really, I would remind myself, that my purpose is to treat all people, all beings with dignity. And when that thought entered me, then it would start relaxing and I'd let it go. Um, so that's a commitment to abandoning the unskillful. Um, when, you've, when the mind has abandoned an unskillful when you've had a moment like this, where you've, got, you've gotten caught and you've let go, the mind goes into a neutral state for just a moment. In that neutral gear, you can very quickly, you're either going to go into a positive or a skillful mental state or into another unskillful one. At that moment is the time to cultivate the third one, which is the third right effort, is the developing of the skillful mental state that has not yet arisen. So here you are in neutral and you consciously, because you know that that's where your mind, you know, can, can run away. 
you consciously uh, cultivate a skillful mental state. And in formal practice, you just might want to, you know, cultivate a calm state. Uh, so just kind of really relax, maybe a half smile. Uh, you've just, you know, spent half an hour daydreaming about something or the other. And, and so you just get non-judgmental, relax, you know, and come right back with a positive mental state. Um, cultivating a skillful mental state can be done anywhere. And that's what's really wonderful about this practice. If you're at the grocery store, uh, you're standing in line, you've got 10 minutes, you can look around. There's a richness of people and experience around you and so many things you can cultivate. You can look at the maybe the uh, checker who's been standing on their feet for the last eight hours, you know, and you can just really con- connect with that and have compassion for them. Or there's someone um, else in the store who's like, you know, hugging their kid and maybe you can have sympathetic joy for them. Um, you know, a multitude of things. So you can just get interested uh, and just have vitality and interest in your surroundings. Look at all these people. Look at all this amazing amounts of food we have available. There's just so many wonderful mental states. And really what we're talking about the fact is that we can change our mental state. We can make ourselves happy. And that's what's really amazing about these, you know, right efforts. Um, So which brings me to the fourth right effort, which is once you have a skillful mental state, to maintain it. Now, when I first started thinking about this, I didn't quite get it. Okay, so I'm feeling really great, you know. You know, should I do anything? I mean, don't I want to just let myself be? But yet, that particular practice is how we develop the very deep meditative concentration, the very deep blissful state. It's by maintaining uh, a skillful mental state and just getting having it contained and get stronger and stronger. We're able to go deeper and, and deeper into levels of meditation and concentration. Which I'll talk about a little bit more uh, when we talk about meditation and mindfulness and concentration. Um, so I want to give an, a, a real, come, kind of a more common example in, of right effort, like um, in daily life. Let's say you go to a family dinner. I don't know how many of you have. Um, it seems like it's uh, a lot of people have this. But there's always like one difficult person there that um, that can be a little bit challenging. And let's say you're at this dinner and. Um, this is somebody who has the opposite point of view that you do politically, and they just won't stop talking about it normally. Um, so, so the first right effort is prevention. So by being aware that if you engage this person, it's going to create this major conflict, it'll be unpleasant for everybody at the table, you prevent it. You, 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 know, you, just, stay, you just don't bring up politics, okay? So, but let's say you don't notice it and all of a sudden you find yourself engaged, you know, and here you are, you know, you know, kind of hitting your head against a brick wall, you know, trying to express your point. Um, That's the second right effort. You notice it, you go, oh, oh, let's agree to disagree and you disengage. You abandon, you, you let go of the unskillful mental state. 
So in the same situation, we want to cultivate something positive. So here's this person who normally you just kind of see them as this is like, I wish they weren't here almost, right? Yeah, so what can you do in that moment to cultivate a skillful mental state? So maybe we look for something in that person that's lovable, something that's likable. And no matter how much somebody is an irritant, there's usually something you can find. You know, they've got beautiful blue eyes. They've got, uh, you know, they love their dog. They treat their dog really well. There's something that, that can be something that we can open our hearts to in that person. So we can cultivate that state. And to maintain that state, uh, maybe we add uh, uh, some well-wish, you know, may they be happy, may they be peaceful. So something to, to just nourish that initial thought of something positive and to start generating a different relationship with this person. So the last thing I want to say about skillful effort is um, a quote by uh, Thomas Jefferson And I'm not sure he was referring to meditation practice, but um, he said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. So I want to talk about uh, the the seventh step of the path, which is right mindfulness. And I've said this before, but um, when we say right mindfulness, you know, right isn't meant to be moralistic, right and wrong. It's really about like right, like being in tune. so uh, right mindfulness is basically the kind of mindfulness that is used in the service of freedom, just like all the other steps of the path. Um, for instance, um, if you made a fist and you decided you're going to punch somebody out, okay, and you feel your fist contract and you feel it very gradually, you're aware of the tension in the arm, moving through the air, you know, the sensation of hitting them, you know, every, every part of that, is that mindfulness? Anybody? What do you think? Is that mindfulness? Are you being mindful? Yeah. Yeah, is it right mindfulness? No. <laughs> um, but, so mindfulness is just a quality of the mind that knows what's there. Um, it can be expanded, which it often is, to be a non-judgmental awareness. And that makes it a lot more useful when we're you know, talking about spiritual practice. Uh, which means that we see what's there. It's an awareness of what's present. And that's it. It doesn't add anything to it. It doesn't embellish anything. Um, mindfulness actually has two aspects. It has the aspect of present moment awareness. And it has the uh, second aspect of memory. Now, to explain that, for instance, um, if if uh, you've you know you're thinking about tomorrow, let's say tomorrow you have um, a big project and you're sort of kind of making plans in your mind and you're very engaged in making those plans. Uh, you know, that's you, you know you might be aware of that moment. You know, very kind of alert and but. Mindfulness adds the piece that you know that you know. Mindfulness, you're aware that you're right now that you're thinking about tomorrow. 
So it adds that little bit of flavor. You're not just lost in thinking about tomorrow, but you're here right now thinking about tomorrow. So it adds that little bit of, of um, spaciousness around it, a little bit of uh, distance around it. So it gives you the opportunity not to all of a sudden here you are thinking about tomorrow and your shoulders are getting up by your ears and your face is scrunching and getting all uptight because you're you're standing back just a little bit and being able to being aware of what's happening that it's right now that you're doing this thinking right now if you start worrying it's right now that you're worrying it has nothing to do with tomorrow right now is with when it's happening so sati requires you um The difference between mindfulness and concentration has to do with the breadth of attention, with the range of attention. Um, concentration is keeping your mind focused on one object or one, one thing, whereas mindfulness has an open quality. Um, it has a much broader range. Uh, for instance, um, one of the um, one of the examples that the Buddha used was uh, the idea of a gatekeeper. So there's a gatekeeper, and you know the people from the village, you know, come through the gate, and it's the gatekeeper's uh, job to decide who's allowed in and who's not allowed in. You know, and it's a very oh yeah, you you're one of the members. Yes, you're not one of the members. No, it's just a gatekeeper. They don't get engaged. It's just they just yep, you go there. Oh, you want to see the magistrate? Yeah, go over there. You want to go see the doctor? Go over there. It's a very neutral type of non-reactive situation. Um, another uh, example that um, also that was given in the. Um, in the suttas, is the example of the charioteer. And this kind of exemplifies the two aspects of the mind. The charioteer, in the present moment, um, you know, has to keep the animals, the chariot under control, right? So it's a very, you know, very present here. But also, another part of the mind, which is the memory part, has to remember where, where they're going. You know, so so these two aspects of the mind, the mind that remembers what our goal is, what where we're going, what we're doing, and the part that's at, totally engaged, you know, if they're not totally present, you know, this thing's going to, you know, get out of control. So both those aspects of the mind, the present moment awareness and knowing that you know. The um, mindfulness is a non-interfering awareness. And that's what allows us to observe, to really get to know the mind, because whatever comes up in the mind is okay. Uh, you know, when we talked about uh, the right efforts, we talk about cultivating the mind and, uh, you know, and, and um, making ourselves happy. So it sounds like we're always doing something. Uh, but there's actually a balance between these two very active way of engaging the mind and a more spacious way of just seeing what's there, and letting the mind free itself. Because as we really allow the mind to come and go, uh, the, the parts of the mind that make us suffer uh, kind of liberate themselves. And what I mean by that is that um, if you're really paying close attention to the mind and you see that by getting really angry at someone, 
it's really hurting you and you actually get to see that from beginning to end wow watch that anger arise and watch how painful that is in my heart and oh and god it doesn't last that long oh look at that it's gone away it's not who i am so by just watching the mind do that it the anger liberates itself it goes away all by itself and the more we're able to see that the more we're able to see that oh maybe i don't want to go there because that's that hurts so it's an art between when we actively um you know decide to do something with their mind and when we sit back and and just kind of let go and see what arises as i said right mindfulness is mindfulness dedicated to freedom of the mind and uh the buddha taught four different um areas in which we want to establish mindfulness and they're called the um by various names but the four foundations of mindfulness and what it is it's uh we start with the very gross paying attention to the gross uh the body the breath the the more obvious and very gradually training the mind to pay attention to subtler and subtler parts of our experience part of the usefulness about paying attention to Uh, or experience in different ways is that we tend to we tend to usually look at life through the same eyes and so by changing our focus looking at ourselves from a different point of view we often see what we might miss um so let me start with the, just briefly with the four foundations um uh the first one's very very uh the gross one is is mindfulness of the body and that's a lot what we're doing when we start meditation here we first are aware of the breath we're aware of sensations in the body and uh this first foundation uh the way that the buddha taught it is that uh that we're supposed to be aware of the body in every posture when we're standing when we're sitting when we're laying down um and and then we get more subtle then we're supposed to stay aware of the body when we're active and that gets a lot more difficult um and like for instance um you know one of the guidelines that i use when to become mindful of the body when i'm active is i try to pay attention to what's moving so if i'm washing dishes you know i'm paying attention to my hands that are moving you know if i'm um you know sweeping you know i'm paying attention to the the movement of my body uh if i'm walking maybe my feet or the whole body moving through the air um so that's the first foundation um without going too deeply in any of these i just really um want to stress that it's really about being mindful in every area of our lives so the second foundation is uh the word is vedana which is feeling but what it refers to is feeling um whether something is pleasant or unpleasant just like we were talking about the cigarette smoke is um really noticing as as you're sitting here um if anything arises any sensations arise is it pleasant or unpleasant if we notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant then we have a chance of a choice of not to react to it if we don't notice we're going to chase the pleasant or when or we're going to push away the unpleasant 
So it's a very powerful practice to notice in our experience, uh, to take some time even during the day where you just, uh, you know, take a sip of water. Is that pleasant or unpleasant? And is the whole experience of it pleasant or unpleasant? And um, so having that awareness gives us choice. The third foundation of mindfulness is paying attention to the quality of the mind. Now, pay attention right at this moment. What does your mind feel like? Is it contracted? Is it expanded? Is it calm? Is it restless? Is it greedy? Does it want something? Or is it accepting? Is it aversive? Does it want something to go away? Or is it kind of settled in in the moment? What's the quality of the mind? And this is something that you can do at any given moment. And um, the fourth foundation is the actual really looking at the process of clinging and freeing ourselves from that clinging directly. The fourth foundation, as I said, we go from the very gross, from the body, to the feeling, to the quality of mind. And now we're looking much more directly at the qualities of the mind that keep us clinging and the qualities of the mind that allow us to be free. Uh, But in a much subtler level. Um, so, you know, there's like five categories that we can go into, but it's not, not something we're going to do today. We call it, uh, mind, the fourth foundation is mindfulness of mental objects or dhammas. Um, but I just wanted to give you a flavor of what that's about. Um, and as the mind is trained gradually to go from the gross developing or skills into the very subtle, you know, for the purpose of really seeing how we can be happy. As I mentioned, all these areas of mindfulness, you know, it's uh, sometimes it, it seems like a lot. You know, there's all these four right efforts. There's all this, you know, four foundations of mindfulness, you know, and um, and especially doing it on one night. It's a little much, you know. <laughs> um, but what I want to say is that the practice, you can always go back to very simple practice. Uh, the purpose of looking in these different ways of looking at it is strictly to it's really for um you know, like if you, have you heard the story of like an elephant, you know, the blind men looking at an elephant? Uh, one person might be touching the trunk and they think, ah, this is what an elephant's like. Another person's uh, touching, you know, the leg and they think, ah, this is what an elephant's like. So each of the blind men is experiencing the elephant in a different way based on where they are. And in the same way, uh, we see ourselves that way. We, like, for instance, like right now, if you look at yourself right now, your experience of how do you feel as a body right now? Pay attention just for a moment. What does your body feel like as a whole? What do you notice? You know, do you notice like you're, you're, where you're sitting on the ground, the heaviness, or do you feel like kind of energy in the body? Um, are you aware of some pain in the back? Are you... Uh, where have you, what, you know, what's the general feeling like? And now switch your attention to the quality of mind. Is your mind contracted, expanded, 
It's a different area. It's a different something that, that you may not have seen. So by changing our focus, you know, often we'll notice, um, you know, in the quality of mind, you might notice that, oh, I was actually contracted a little bit. I was actually a little bit anxious there. You know, whereas when you're paying attention to the body, you may have missed it. So, um, so it's a really good training to kind of systematically, at different points in your practice, of branching out in your focus. Um, it depends where you are in your practice, you know. So, you know, um, these are all great tools that can be used at different times. So the, uh, going into the very last step, the eighth step of the Eightfold Path is right concentration or samadhi. And um, as we said, uh, concentration corresponds to the enhancement of the selective function of the mind. The part of the mind that restricts the breadth of attention. It narrows it. It, And the effect of doing that with the mind is that it calms the mind. It makes it very tranquil. It's often called serenity practice. And can lead to very blissful, peaceful states. Um, The... The um, samadhi or concentration practice uh, can work in a couple of different ways. Um, In one of the ways, such as when we focus on a single object and keep our attention very, very narrow, and, um, and you unify the mind, so everything, it doesn't matter what comes up, you just bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. You don't notice anything else. And that kind of concentration um, can go very deep into some of these very, very pleasant, peaceful, serenity states. The other way of concentrating is what's called moment-to-moment concentration. And that's what we do hand-in-hand with the pasna, with our, with our mindfulness practice, where we're, we're concentrating on the breath, but if, uh, let's say, a pain comes up that's very intense, the mind makes the pain the object of the meditation. But the awareness is steady. The awareness doesn't let up. So it's a continuity of awareness. That awareness creates a concentrated state also. But it's got a different quality. And so then you go back to the breath. And if you can stay awake without spacing out, uh, you know, or as you strengthen that muscle, coming back, coming back, um, in the practice of choiceless awareness, whatever arises, you give that same quality of complete presence to. So it might be the knee, it might be uh, a memory comes up of some... Uh, you know, happy time, and you and you are giving your attention. Oh, I, that's a memory that came up, and then you go back to the breath. But it's the continuity of that awareness of that moment-to-moment concentration. Um, what makes it right concentration is that we concentrate uh, in a wholesome, skillful manner. Again, uh, going back to the um, safe cracker, you know, a safe cracker can be very one-pointed, but that's not wholesome. Um, an athlete might be one-pointed, and that can be very wholesome, very skillful, but it still might not be right concentration because 
uh, right concentration is really for the purpose of freeing the mind. So an athlete's purpose might be to be number one. In fact, an athlete can be very, very focused, completely present, but yet they're perp- they're, they might be internally upset as they're number two, they're not number one, you know, and yet still be very, very concentrated. Uh, so, uh, so what we're looking at is concentration to get the mind so clear and so powerful and so steady that it can see through the delusions that we have that keep us from being free. Um, the, um, in the uh, Buddhist um, canon, the Pali canon, uh, wise concentration or right concentration is often associated uh, with these very deep states of concentration called jhanas. And... Um, uh, the jhanas are, um, there's, uh, there's like four, uh, four main jhanas that they talk about in the main uh, writings. And then there's four more that are also, none of this, there are another four that are uh, considered the, um, the first four are the, the ones that are really talked about in terms of um, the, the body. Um, and the second four are considered the bodiless ones. Um, and what's meant by that is that in the first four jhanas, uh, the absorptions get subtler and subtler and subtler. And um, they have different qualities. So as we get concentrated and we get very, very calm, uh, the mind enters into a very joyful, very joyful, very intense state. And, then, and that's considered the first jhana. And then it kind of, uh, after a little while, that high energy gets to calm down a little bit more and we enter into a state of contentment. And, um, and, and so the energy just um, gets subtler and calmer and quieter and, um, and more and more, uh, and it's a kind of like, you know, it's described as bliss. Different people describe it in different ways. Um, and in the fourth jhana, the Buddha, which is the quality of the fourth jhana, is equanimity. It's, it's, uh, it's just very um, quiet state of not wanting. Nothing has to be any different. And that's the state of mind that the Buddha was in when he got awakened. The other states, and the reason I mention them is because some people have a predilection for these different states. Um, and so it's just kind of good to know that they're there. Uh, and some people have an interest in pursuing them. And some people, they're, they're, not, necess- they're not really necessary. Uh, we can get awakened in any of those uh, deeply concentrated states. Um, the, the last four jhanas, which they call the formless jhanas, supposedly we no longer can hear anything, and we're no longer aware of our bodies. And um, they're called in, um, the base of infinite space, of infinite consciousness, of nothingness. So they're kind of pretty out there. <laughs> um, and that's about all I'll do is just mention them. Um, but um, when we're in a very concentrated state, um, it, it's... Um, 
very, and we come out of that concentrated state and we apply our mindfulness to the present moment to uh, really pierce through reality, we actually can see a lot of things we can't see in, in ordinary consciousness. So it's a real, um, it's a real help for our practice. Uh, it's a lot easier to let go of things when you see how impermanent they are, but not in a theoretical way, but in a very real way. When we see that, um, you know, this glass is already broken, it's already gone. When you really see that in a very deep experiential state, then there's no reason to hold on to it. And all the pain and suffering that comes from like trying to keep it, trying to hold on to this experience that just keeps moving and going and changing. And we see that there is no happiness to be had by holding on to it. So all that, you know, we, we may know it in our intellect, but as we enter into these deep states, we're able to apply the power of the mind to, to um, really enter that understanding in, of, the, of the truth, of the Four Noble Truths, that clinging to anything is what causes our suffering. And by opening our hand, by letting go of this clinging, that that is the way to freedom. And, um, and hopefully we can finally let go completely. And, uh, and so I'm going to um, end with um, uh, just a quote from the Dhammapada. Um, the mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects, the watched mind brings happiness. So I actually left a few minutes for questions this time. <laughs> uh, I think I talked extra fast so I could cover all that. But um, So if anybody has any questions, either about what we talked about tonight or about your practice or um, you know, uh, anything you, you know, you'd like to ask. So the seventh, um, seventh stage or point was um, mindfulness. And in the seven um, steps to awakening, that's the first. You know, you know, three, I guess, that sort of gets you to other stages, mindfulness, uh, effort, and investigation. The seven factors of factors awakening. Of awakening, yeah. right. So a little confused. Um, not, well, in seven factors of awakening, mindfulness is the first, and it seems like you need a little bit of everything kind of muddling along in various amounts. But uh, could you comment on sort of the ordin- ordin- the ordinals of where yes. they live? Yeah. Um, you know, the seven factors of awakening are the, the seven qualities that are needed to wake up. So when those, all those factors are really fully developed in that moment, you, you can have an experience of awakening. And um, the first one is mindfulness. And um, the, there's a quality in which the factors lead. Uh, if you're very mindful, like right, right at this moment, um, you start becoming interested in your surroundings. 
And as you become interested, your energy rises. So these are kind of the natural consequences of mindfulness. Um, and, and so the factors of awakening kind of lead into each other that way. Uh, so as you become, you know, uh, energetic, then joy arises. And as joy arises, the mind gets happy and calm and, and, and so on. So uh, there's a natural tendency to do that. But it's all a theory. It's all, it's all ideas. It's not really the way or, you know, the experience really happens. Um, you know, I've had experiences where, you know, I have great calm. And then all of a sudden, you know, I... Uh, you know, I need a little bit more mindfulness, you know, so the calm arises first or, um, you know, or joy arises and um, there's just not quite enough calm, you know, so you balance the mind. So there's very different ways of working with that. So a lot of these lists, so-called lists, are again, are taught as kind of because we need to structure things, otherwise we don't remember them. Um, but there's also a difference in, in, in the, um, as a step in the Eightfold Path, right mindfulness relates to the four foundations of mindfulness, to all the broad areas in which you need to apply mindfulness to and how to apply mindfulness. Whereas as a factor of awakening, it might be more the quality of a mind that's really in the present and really remembering to be in the present. Um, so it's more the quality of the mental state as opposed to um, the way of we establish mindfulness in these different areas. So it kind of went a few places there. <laughs> uh, I have a question about the idea of being happy. Um, Uh, the question is, I guess you can look at it many ways, and maybe curious how you look at it. Um, you know, training the mind to be happy versus, um, you know, sort of training the mind to be happy suggests you're going to move it in a certain direction away from the natural order of things. And then there's this other path of thinking where, uh, my understanding of like equanimity is um, you become at peace whether there's you know great sadness passing through you or you know whether it's something very unpleasant passing through you or something very pleasant. So you're training yourself to be happy with great unhappiness or with with whatever's there. So there's like these two opposite things. I I feel more pulled in one direction. It seems like some teacher more pulled in the other direction. Do you know what I'm asking about? Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's a great question. And um, the what we're talking about happiness is a happiness that, for instance, um, uh, you can you can have uh, be at the bedside of someone who's dying and feel a great loss. You know, this is a friend who's dying. And there's a lot of, there's sadness, you know. But at the same time, there can be a very deep connection with that person. And there's a certain level of happiness, even with that great sadness. Um, 
and and loss and and you know compassion you know if they're suffering you know feeling a deep sense of compassion for their suffering compassion hurts a little bit you know the heart the heart feels that we're we're with their pain and so but that's that can still be encompassed within a certain level of great happiness uh, happiness does not mean that it's always pleasant Happiness is a state of freedom where there's nothing saying, nothing, we don't want anything to be different. So if pain arises, pain arises. It doesn't mean we stop our physical suffering as human beings, that we no longer, you know, we still have losses, we still have, uh, we're still human. Um, but we're no longer clinging, trying to keep our experience from, from moving on, uh, you know, preventing our suffering, preventing this. Um, and the other thing, um, you know, one of the things we sometimes don't realize is that when we're unhappy, it's not just a natural state. We're actually doing something. We, we make ourselves unhappy by the habits of our mind. It's kind of like, um, have any of you had a bad habit, like either like biting your fingernails or smoking or any bad habit? You know, it's automatic, right? You know, you're just biting your nails, biting, 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 you know. But it's something you do. And same thing when we're unhappy, you know, and uh, it's something we're doing with our minds. It's just automatic. We've been doing it for so long, we're just conditioned. So... Um, so there's nothing more unnatural about making ourselves happy than making ourselves miserable. <laughs> They're both habits of mind. And, um, and that's, the, you know, but, I, but like I said, it, there is the path uh, in Buddhism, you know, there's, there's um, a lot of people subscribe to the idea of just letting go. But even when you're just letting go, the path of letting go, it's still something you're doing. You know, so it can be looked at in many ways, you know, and um, so I think there's room for all the different ways of looking at it. So was there uh, one more question? Yeah. There is consideration for the body, they say, having pressure points. Um, Let's say we have past memories of anger, frustration, whatever those emotions may be. It is said by some, and I don't know how true that is, I have no idea, but those emotions are stored in certain parts of our body. And by people going and applying pressure to those parts of the body, those emotions somehow are released or modified. So I guess the question is, what is the mind? Does the mind include those bodily pressure points which do get the release of emotions? Is that part of the mind? Um. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, is, our, uh, is, is the mind include our memories? Memories are part of our mind. Um, scientifically, they say that um, uh, the memory is um, holotropic. That means that every part of the body holds memory. Um, so, 
so it's very possible, you know, theoretically, that the mind uh, is in certain parts of the body. Or, I mean, there's a lot of theories about how that could come about. But I think that in meditation, what's, what might be really practical is the fact that when you do a lot of deep meditation, a lot of these deep memories come up. And deep pains come up. Um, I remember um, one teacher said, you know, she just started having this really terrible pain in her ankle. And, um, and then uh, after a while, the memory came up when she was uh, bit by a dog there. And, and then once that memory came up, the pain went away. So just like with the pressure points, you know, there might be a way of bringing your attention to it. Uh, but um, those memories are somehow stored somewhere. We don't really know how. I mean, you know, we have all these ideas. At the time of the Buddha, we understood the body one way. Now we understand the body another way. And there's a lot of fascinating theories, um, you know, including the one you've mentioned. But that's, that's what it is. It's an idea of trying to explain why these things happen. Why does it happen that, you know, when you relax... Um, I mean, I used to, you know, in my previous incarnation as a chiropractor, um, I remember, you know, just massaging somebody's shoulders and they just burst into tears. And I had times when I would just do something very gentle and they'd go laugh into hysterics. And it's amazing how, you know, it wasn't that uncommon. But just by touching certain areas would bring these recollections. Um, and that's what happens in meditation sometimes. You know, we touch these different areas in ourselves and, uh, um, you know, can have a lot of uh, interesting experiences. Thank you. So, okay, one more very quick one. It's not really a question. I'm just following up on his comment that, um, yeah, and I have worked with people who work with releasing emotions through pressure points and it has been my experience that yeah and and even in a massage situation where somebody just touched me and I just started cracking up for no reason so I just wanted to validate your comment that yeah I've seen that and experienced it so thank you very much and it's been really wonderful being here this last month and uh, if anybody has any questions or comments afterwards I'll, I'll be around so feel free to come up to me but thank you